Well, this morning, we take time to conclude uh, our missions emphasis services. We've been having what we'll call missions convention. This is the third Sunday in that. And just before I begin to speak and we look at God's word, I'm gonna invite our ushers. They have uh, faith promise cards in hand, and I'll explain more about that a little bit later in the service. But many of you, if you received the bulletin this week you, or even last week, you most likely have one in hand. But can I just ask you, if you need one this morning, the ushers are watching, if you need one this morning, would you just raise your hand just long enough for them to see it, and we'll be sure to get you a faith promise card. That way everyone has one in hand. And I would just encourage you to pull that faith promise card out, have it ready, and then we'll look at that a little bit later in service, and that is a chance that we use to really gauge our giving as a church for the coming year. As I mentioned this morning, we conclude what we call Missions Convention. In the last three weeks, we have uh, just had some pretty incredible mission speakers to be with us, to speak to us, to challenge our hearts. If you remember, two weeks ago, we had with us uh, Randy and Becky Tara. They work with missionaries in Senegal. Then on Wednesday night, and many of you may not have been able to be with us on Wednesday night, we had just a sharp young couple, Ethan and Leah White. They're working with Syrian refugees on the border of Turkey, and then we'll be going into Syria as soon as the government will allow. And then just last week, we had Leif Hetland, and Leif Hetland has a global ministry working specifically with Muslims. God has given him open doors into Pakistan. That's what we received our Miracle Missions offering for. And sometimes when we can hear those stories, there's just... I think there's something good for our hearts to hear how God's working in our world, how he's working through our giving, how he's working to bring Jesus into places and areas that we really don't know or we're not aware of how he's working. But sometimes if you're like me, I can sit through a mission service or I can sit and listen to an incredible speaker on missions and the places that God's going and, and working through them. And my wife and I and my family, we've had a chance to sit with each of the mission speakers and just to listen to them. And there's so many stories and things they share of just miraculous power and how God's providing and how God's going before them that, that just kind of leaves you in awe of how God is working through them. And sometimes at times we can listen to speakers like the ones we've heard the last few weeks and we can walk away almost thinking like they're almost like a larger than life type person. Like this is incredible how these people are being used and how we're just amazed at how God's working through them. And I think each time when I'll hear someone who will speak different ones, it'll come through that we just have that, that sense. And sometimes when we look in scripture that we can look at an individual in scripture and we can lose the fact or the reality that this was a real person just like you and me with real problems, real challenges, real families, all the things that go in life. And we can almost look at them as being larger than life as well. Or even I think perhaps a, a word that we could put is we can look at them almost like a celebrity, like this person's just so much higher up there than I am. But the truth is, from heaven's perspective, there really are no spiritual celebrities. From heaven's perspective, there's no celebrities. There's not one person who is better than others from God's perspective. In fact, I think when God looks from heaven and he looks at individuals, he doesn't look at, at spiritual celebrities. What he looks and he sees people who are willing and those who aren't. That's the difference seeing people who are willing and those who aren't. And willing, being willing can look any number of ways. We'll see it this morning when our giving, we see it with others in willingness to go. But one of the people that I think about in life when we think about them being a larger than life type person when it comes to scripture is I think about the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is a individual in the Old Testament, you can look with me in Isaiah chapter six and we'll look there in just a moment. But when it comes to the prophet Isaiah, just to, to kind of read off his, his biblical resume, he, God used him to write prophecies about Jesus before Jesus was born, at least 700 years or more before Jesus was born. I mean, that's pretty impressive to stop and to think about God using you in that way. 
The prophet Isaiah is the most quoted uh, prophet in the New Testament. In fact, he's the most quoted prophet by Jesus. I think if you have Jesus quoting you, that's something. He's the second, he's written the second most quoted book in the, from the Old Testament and New Testament, only topped by the Psalms themselves. So we look at Isaiah, and Isaiah is just kind of like this larger-than-life type person, much like the missionaries and the things that we've heard over the last few weeks. But when we look at the beginnings of the prophet Isaiah, when God began to use him and began to use his life, that I think we can find some things in common from his life, the way that God revealed himself to him in that moment that then propelled him to go forward, kind of in this encounter moment that God used to help him see how God desired to use him. So let's look in Isaiah chapter six together, and then I will just wanna show you three, three pictures, three things from Isaiah's commissioning moment when God revealed himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah went out and began to speak on God's behalf that I think we can take and we can learn from this morning. Isaiah chapter six, beginning in verse one, we'll read verses one through eight. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, or Uzziah, depending on how you say it, died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. As I'd mentioned, three things from this encounter that Isaiah has in the temple as he goes before God just to, to worship and to kind of clear his mind from the, the things that were happening in his nation. And he steps into the temple in that moment, has that encounter with the presence of God and three things that I think you and I can learn from. The first thing that I see when you look at this story is we get a picture of God's sovereignty. A picture of God's sovereignty, a picture that God is still in control. Look in verse number one again. It says, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just to give you a quick story for, from, from the Old Testament, King Uzziah was a godly king, and he ended up doing a few things that ultimately brought on a divine curse of leprosy in his life. We'll look at that in just a moment. But he, brings, he did some things that brought on a divine curse of leprosy in his life, and ultimately he had to live as a king. He had to live in separation from the people the rest of his days. So it was really a mark of shame upon the nation. And then the king had died, and so the, currently the nation was without a ruler, and then there was the threat of invasion, the threat of a foreign army coming in. You can read about it in just, in just a few chapters later of a threat of invasion that to come. So you see this time of great national crisis. There's just a great time of, of alarm and concern in the nation. And you can sense with Isaiah as he goes into the temple. He goes into the temple. His heart's just heavy and burdened. I mean, can you imagine? Put it, put it into your perspective, into your world today. 
that if you had reached a point, and much like I think when 9-11 took place and the tragedy that took place in 9-11, there was this sense of vulnerability in our nation. There was this sense of what is going on, what is happening. And I believe, I really remember on those immediate days after and the services after, the services were packed with people coming because their hearts were much like Isaiah, just burdened and heavy thinking, God, what's happening? What's happening to our nation? What's happening in all of this? And you get a sense from Isaiah that that's kind of where he's at. He's in this place of just inward turmoil, national turmoil, wondering really, God, where are you at in the midst of all of this? But it says that as he steps into the temple, he steps into the place that reminds him of God's presence. He steps into the place that's a reminder and a remembrance to the people that that God is faithful and that God is always with his people is that as he steps into the, the place and into that moment and his outlook in the world around him is great tragedy and his outlook in the world around him is great turmoil, it says that in this moment he walks in and his heart is heavy and he says, I walked in and then I got a glimpse. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. It says, he, I walked in and my heart was heavy, my heart was burdened, things weren't going well in our nation, things seemed out of control, but the moment that he got a glimpse of God, it says he saw God was still seated on the throne. Amen. Being seated on the throne is a position of authority, it's a position of power, and he says, I, I came in and our nation was in turmoil, the circumstances were, were mounting around us, but the moment I got a glimpse of God, I saw that he was still high, he was still exalted, and he was still in control. That it's a reminder and a picture that God is always in control. In fact, I would suggest in your life this morning, there is never a time when you'll realize God is more in control than when you realize that you're not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about the trials and tragedies that come in life and the circumstances that he's facing. And he reaches a point where he says, I, I prayed and wished that God would take this away, but then God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for when you're at your weakest, when you're in the least control, when you feel like you most cannot control and understand what's happening around, he says, that's the time when I'm most in control. That's the time when you sense my grace the closest. That's the time when you sense my provision the best. Just like Isaiah this morning, it's a reminder in your life that do you wanna know that God's in control, then perhaps it's time to give him control. To take your hands off and to say, God, I trust you in this. I may not understand the circumstances. I may not understand what's happening. I may not understand the, the turmoil that's going on in my family, the turmoil that's going on, and, and you fill in the blank of where it's at. But it's a reminder that God still is always in control. And the second thing I want you to see with this, just this picture of God's sovereignty and his being in control, it says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and it says the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. I had the privilege this past December, uh, right after Christmas, to be able to give one of my daughters away in marriage. And in that ceremony, as we walked down, her dress didn't have a large train, but as we came down the aisle, that there's, you, you see with a bride that there's a train that goes behind the dress, and, and it really follows wherever they've been. But the Bible tells us that when it gives a picture of God in this moment, it says that as his, his train of his robe, where he had been, it said it filled everything. It said it filled everything. It didn't say, well, it just filled a little part here or a little part there. It says it filled everything. There's a reminder that as we talk about God being in control and God being sovereign and God being faithful, that he's not just in control in little things. He's in control in all things. 
He's in control in every circumstance, in every situation, in everything that we might face in our lives. And when I look at this, and, I, and I'm reminded, I remember hearing someone say some time ago that when you're in life and when your outlook looks bleak, then try the uplook. To get your eyes up, to be reminded that God's faithful, that he's still in control, and that he's still with you in spite of what you may have just stepped into. And I look at this and I think about when it comes to missions is that for you and I, we can spend so much of our lives because we, if you're like me, I, have, I, have very, I very much have a, rich, a, a routine that I go through. I have a lot of routines that I'll just go through. It's part of life. It's just part of my day. And most here probably have a set time you get up, a set time you need to be out the door, a set time you need to be at the office, a set time you need to be, and you just have your schedule that you need to hold to. And we have all of these rhythms and routines that we hold to in life. And sometimes the longer we live our lives in that routine, the longer we go about it, the longer you, you're with your family, the longer you you have all of the things that fill your life that before long we begin to view, view life kind of a little bit through this lens of, well, it's all about me and it's all about my life and it's all about my schedule and all about, all about everything that impacts your life. And sometimes you might hear on the news a tragedy or hear different things in the world, but for the most part, we live life centered on ourselves. And I think missions is a reminder to expand the picture for us. It's a bigger picture that in the midst of our world and in the midst of what we may hear, the midst of what we may see, that God is still sovereignly working in our world. That the gospel is still going out, that people are still hearing, people are still believing, the power of God is still healing. That missions is a great reminder to expand our hearts, expand our minds, and to expand our visions to the sovereignty and the control and the power of God that is going out. I believe that it's an invitation to be a part. We saw that with Isaiah. He got the picture that God was in control and it became an invitation for him to be a part. So it's a reminder. I want to invite you in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I think it helps kind of pull all of this together for us this morning on the big picture of the picture of God's sovereignty, seeing the big picture of how he's at work. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. When you look at this verse, and if you could leave it on the screen for me for just a moment, it says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. When it says that we're captives in Christ's triumphal procession, the Bible tells us in Romans, it says that when we place our faith in Christ, when you give your life to Christ, if you're here this morning and you've made a profession of Jesus Christ, placing your faith in him, it says you've gone from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness, to being a captive to the lifestyle that God, God has for you. Not that you're, you're constrained, we have choices in it, but it's saying your, your ownership has changed. You're no longer under the ownership of sin, you're now under the ownership of, of Christ and the freedom that he's brought in your life. And it says, so you and I this morning, if we have placed our faith in Christ, that we are captives in Christ in his triumphal procession. Now when you think about a triumphal procession, do we have any Philadelphia Eagles fans in here? I'm not raising my hand because I'm one of them, I'm raising it to encourage you to raise your hand. Any Philadelphia Eagles fans in here this morning? I see a few hands. When you think about the Philadelphia Eagles and they just won the Super Bowl, after the Super Bowl was over, they had a triumphal procession to celebrate. They had a victory parade, right? 
Most professional sports have a victory parade at some point once the trophy has been brought home. So a triumphal procession is not a matter of capturing the victory. It's a matter of celebrating the victory. Do you understand me? So when we see this and it says that we are captives, we are part, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part of the celebration of the victory that Jesus has brought about. You're a part of the triumphal procession, but then look how it says that he goes about making it known. It says that he always, backing up, who always, always, meaning everywhere, every moment, every place, he always uses those who are a part of his victory parade to spread the aroma or the awareness of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere. So always, triumphal procession, everywhere. That God is always working to celebrate his victory everywhere. He's always working to use every person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ as a, as a triumphal procession, as a declaration of who he is everywhere. That's a declaration of the sovereignty of God, of the power of God, of the purposes of God, and how he's looking to use you and looking to use me. Secondly, not only is the story of Isaiah a picture of God's sovereignty, as I believe it's also, for you and me, it's a picture of his holiness. Look in verse number one again. It says, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. As I mentioned, when it came to King Uzziah, he was known as a godly king. For the most part, he did right by his reign and by his, his, his rule as a king of the nation of Israel. But as he served as the king, he did one thing that he shouldn't have done, and the one thing that he did as he shouldn't have done was that he began to be prideful. And as he began to be prideful, he reached a point as a king where he felt like he could begin to replace the priests in some of the responsibilities that they had in the temple. And so he began to go and he would burn incense, which was symbolic of reminder of the people's prayers coming before God and some other symbolic things in there. But there were things that were set apart only for the priests to do. And so because Uzziah had become prideful in that moment, God struck him with leprosy as a sign, as a reminder that, listen, you, you can't overstep your bounds in the places that you're supposed to be serving. And so he was struck with leprosy, and as I'd mentioned earlier, he had to spend the rest of his days in seclusion and away from the people, which is not something a king wants to do. And so in this picture, the picture that we get is that Uzziah is really a picture of pride. So as you look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, I think you and I could better, we could easily read it to think, in the year that pride was dealt with, in the year that pride was gone, I got a clear picture of God that I hadn't seen before. In the year that pride was addressed, I finally got a picture of God that I had not seen before, reading it from Isaiah's perspective. And so when you think about that and you think about him getting a picture of God, I really believe that pride will always restrict you and me from being able to see and understand who God is more. It can be pride in our possessions. It can be pride in our finances. It can be pride in our position. It can be pride in our religious activity. But anytime that we begin to take priority and we begin to put ourselves at the center of the story, we begin to allow pride to control our lives. And ultimately, what we see in the story is that pride hinders our ability to see and understand God. And I think one of the areas that we most often lose sight of when it comes to not only just in pride, but really just in our Christian life, is sometimes we can fail to understand or really get a, a, a true picture of what it means to understand God as being a holy God. We see in the story in Isaiah chapter 6 
that it's a picture is that Isaiah comes and he gets a picture, an understanding of God as being a holy God. And I think in our lives, sometimes we lose the impact of what that means to be holy. I look at what we think about God as a holy God. When I look in the New Testament and I look in the scripture that you and I live with a New, New Testament understanding of how God works in our lives through Jesus Christ. We live with a New Testament understanding of what his grace means, what his forgiveness means. We get a, just a full picture and understanding of that. And I think that's completely good and completely appropriate. We can look in the New Testament and Jesus says that if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. We get a picture of that. Jesus talks about the love that God reveals to us through Jesus Christ. We see that. We, we can see in Romans chapter 8, it talks about, it says that God places his Holy Spirit in our lives and as he places his Spirit in our lives, that the Holy Spirit in us is then produces in us a willingness and an ability to call it to God as Abba Father, just an intimate call to God as our Father. But we see that the scriptures give us a very clear picture that God is a God of love, he's a God of grace, he's a God of forgiveness. When we look in scripture, the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and forgive us from all unrighteousness. That in the moment we sin, we can ask God for forgiveness and grace and he offers that. And those are all completely true and completely right and completely biblical. But I think sometimes we can lose sight of the picture and understanding of what it means to know God as being a holy God. Because even though we think about God as being a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of justice, uh, we can, and those are all completely true, we can't forget that he's still a God who is completely holy. So when it comes to thinking about the holiness of God, there's, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think you could probably spend a whole series or spend a whole year talking about the holiness of God and understanding the holiness of God and how that relates into our lives. But when you see in Scripture, specifically in New Testament living, that we're continually called to be holy, to be set apart. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that we're to be holy as he is holy. We're to be holy. We're to be different. But I think to best summarize, and not to, not to minimize the attribute of holiness, understanding God as a holy God, but to help, I guess to best summarize it, is if I were to try to help summarize the meaning what the holiness of God is, is that it, it, it's kind of the, the perfect summary of everything that he is. It's the complete sum, the, the completely perfect sum of all that he is. To think about God as being a loving God, would he be completely loving if, would he be perfectly loving if he was only loving most of the time? He wouldn't. To think about God as being a God who is just, would he be completely just if he was, would he be perfectly just if he was only just most of the time? But the Bible tells us that God is always loving, that he's always just, he's always faithful. And so one of the best ways to think about God being a holy God is it's the perfect summary, complete summary of all of his perfect attributes. So to minimize one and highlight another is to really take away from understanding God as being a completely holy God. God is holy, and he, but he desires relationship with us. And you might think about that when we think about the holiness of who he is and the holiness that scripture tells us of, of who God is. And we think about that sometimes in our minds because we, we just, it's how our minds work. Sometimes we can compartmentalize things and we can spend time in missions emphasis as we've been in now and we think missions is good, but then later we can talk about the holiness of God and we can say, well, that's good, but it's over here. And we can talk about all these different things and parts that are part of the Christian life, but we never fully pull them all together and connect them. 
But it's important to remember that when we talk about God being holy and a completely holy and completely perfect God, that it's completely connected to missions. It's completely connected to what you and I do with missions and our responsibility with missions. So we think about God being a holy God and we talk about him being completely loving and completely perfect and completely just. When we think about his, his perfection and who he is, when we think about God being perfect, when it comes to you and I and our sin, the moment you and I sin, when you make a choice to sin, it could be as simple as one thought. You immediately miss God's mark. You immediately lower where you're at and you miss his mark of perfection, his mark of holiness and of who he is. I've told people before when we talk about the, the grace of God and we talk about the holiness of God and the ongoing work of God, when we think about God as being a holy God, that if you and I had the ability, which is impossible, but if we had the ability to live a perfect life this point forward, perfect in thought, perfect in action, perfect in, in motive, perfect in every single part of who we are, that if we could live perfect from this point forward, you and I would still fall short of the holiness of who God is because we cannot change yesterday. You cannot change five minutes ago. You cannot change last year. And so God in his perfect holiness saw and sought and desired relationship with you and relationship with me, but seeing his perfection, seeing his holiness, seeing who he is, seeing that his inability to sin or be associated with sin, but he saw the need that you had for relationship with him, the need that he, the desire that he had for relationship with you. God in his perfect holiness sought a way to reestablish that connection. And so in his perfect holiness, he offered a perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect sinless life, to die on the cross as the perfect substitute for your sin, the perfect penalty for your sin, so that in his resurrection, we could then be a part of that and have relationship with God. And so God, in his holiness, saw the perfect avenue for you and I to be restored into relationship with him so that we could then enjoy the perfect peace that he offers in relationship out of his holiness of who he is. And so when it comes to missions, it's very much connected to the holiness of God because it's a reminder that I am desperately in need of the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that God extends to me every day through Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that as I'm in need of the grace and the forgiveness that God offers me through Jesus Christ on a daily basis, that there are others in the world who also need it. There are others who have never even heard that there's a God who offers the grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ that you and I can sit and sing about and read about and learn freely about. And so missions is a reminder that because God is holy and God desires relationship with us, we must be a part of sharing him with others. I believe missions, that when it comes to Isaiah, that it's a picture of God's holiness. And then lastly, I believe that it's a picture of our responsibility. It's a picture of our responsibility. Look with me in verse number five. We'll read verses five through eight. It says, woe to me. This is in this encounter that Isaiah has in this moment he says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live, a, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. 
And you'll see the picture of Isaiah in this moment that he comes into a place where he gets a real picture of the holiness of God. The, the seraphim that are angelic type beings that, that many scholars still don't fully understand and know who they are. They're different than typical angels, but they're angelic beings that surface at most twice in scripture. One here, one later in Revelation. And in Revelation, they're also declaring, and they're not named by name, but they're declaring the holiness of God once again. And what many will say is these individuals are, are, are there to reflect and remind individuals of the holiness of God. And it says they go and they take a, a live coal from the altar, sim, being sim, uh, symbolic of the, the forgiveness that God was offering Isaiah in the moment. But Isaiah moves from recognizing the holiness of God to seeing his own need for forgiveness to then seeing his responsibility to others. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the, his, his own need for forgiveness and then that moves him to seeing his responsibility towards others. In fact, not only did he see his responsibility towards others, he began to see others differently. If you look in, in the, the story, once again, he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. He's, he realizes he lives among others who need the same grace that's been extended to him. I think often when I think of Isaiah in this moment and I see this encounter that he's had, this is where I think you and I are most often like Isaiah. That in this moment, before he's willing and volunteers to go, he sees his own failure, he sees his own shortcomings, he sees where he's missed it. He's like, God, I'm ruined, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad guy. He says, God, I, I, I can't do this, I am not worthy to be standing here in this moment in your presence. Of course, God offered him the grace and the forgiveness, but he saw where he fell short. He saw all of his failures, he saw all of his weaknesses, he saw all the reasons why he was not good enough to be in the moment. In fact. The, the rabbinic tradition will tell us that Isaiah, his, his father, was the brother of the king's father, meaning he was the king's cousin. So Isaiah could even point to it and say, God, I'm even from the wrong branch of the family tree to be used in this moment. But Isaiah instead it sees all that's wrong and all that he can't offer, and yet God in his grace offers what he can, and that in turn enables Isaiah to be a part of going and sharing with others the message that God had placed on his heart. And I think oftentimes when I, when I see Isaiah in this moment and I think of you and I think of me in this moment and it comes to missions, is that many times in this story and, and for our lives, I think one of the, the greatest barriers that you and I face when it comes to missions is that we know ourselves better than anyone else. And because we know ourselves better than anyone else, we see where we fail, we see where we mess up, we see where our resources aren't good enough, we see where our talents fall short, where we don't have enough to offer, where there's always someone else who can offer more, someone who's a little bit better in this, a little bit better in that, and all the reasons that others would be more suitable to go, more suitable to give, more suitable to be a part. But when it comes to our willingness to be a part of missions, not just in giving, but in going and in living a life that is bringing Jesus into the lives of others, when it comes to our willingness to be used, God never looks at what we can't offer. He looks at what we can. And really, he, looks, he begins by looking at what he offers. But he doesn't look at what we can't offer. He looks at what we can, and what we can offer is ourselves, our availability, our being willing to say yes, our being willing to step forward and let God use us, that he desires to use us just as we are. Just like Isaiah, he was willing to take him, to forgive and then empower him to go. And when I, when I look at this story of Isaiah, there's one more detail I wanna give you, and then we'll end with spending time filling out our faith promise cards, and then I wanna spend just a little bit of time praying over each one here this morning. There's one more detail I wanna show you from the story, and it's in verse chapter eight, if you'll look there with me one more time. 
It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. It's like Isaiah is standing in this moment. He's standing in God's presence, standing in the temple. And as he's standing there and all the things we've just talked about take place, that he gets a picture of the holiness of God. He sees his, his inadequacies. He sees the needs of those around him. He sees people differently. And he, he sees all of this unfolding around him. But then in that moment, it's almost as if God invites him to sit in on a little bit of a business transaction in heaven. It's like he's invited in just to hear for a moment some of the dealings in heaven and how, how things transpire. And what he hears, it's very similar. You'll see in 1 Kings chapter 22, there's another time where a very similar picture is given with a prophet and, and a king, another very similar story. But it's like he gets to sit in on this business dealing of heaven for just a moment. And as he's sitting in on this business dealing of heaven, this, this business meeting, what he hears is that there's a heavenly purpose that's awaiting for earthly fulfillment. That there's something in heaven that God desires to see worked out on earth, but he's looking for someone who's willing to be available and willing to be used. And so Isaiah, in that moment, because he's just had this, this encounter in the presence of God, he sees himself differently, he sees his nation differently, he steps forward and he says, here am I, I'm the one, you can use me. And then God begins to use him powerfully and uses him mightily. But it's that hanging question of who's willing? Who's willing to be a part? Who's willing to, to step forward and be used? And when I look at that, I, I find that, that question of who's willing being echoed in the New Testament in, first, uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. It says this, how can they call on the one of they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's the question of who's willing. Who's willing to be a part? Who's willing to give? Who's willing to go? Who's willing to help bring the gospel, to bring the hope that we have through Jesus Christ into the lives of others? And so this morning, when it comes to your life and it comes to my life, we each hold a faith promise card. And this faith promise card is really just a symbol it's a little symbol and it's a reminder of God's desire to use you and his desire to use me when it comes to missions. It's called a faith promise card because it's, it's a faith promise. It's a faith step, a willingness to step forward and say, God, I believe through my life, through my finances today and for this year that through me you can do this much towards missions and what we do as a church family when it comes to the missions, to giving, that you hold this card and it really represents an opportunity, an opportunity you and I have to be willing to step forward and to say, God, I'm available and I'd like for you to use me. And so when these faith promise cards are filled out, in just a moment, the ushers are going to come and we'll just collect them. There's a spot you can tear off and you can hang on to as a reminder for you. We take these cards and just so you kind of have an idea of what happens with them, we, we take them and we, we tally them up just to be able to have a final figure of this is what we believe as a congregation God can do through us and through our willingness to give. And then what we do as a congregation, we take 10% of what comes in uh, through our offerings on Sunday mornings and we put that towards missions as well. And we believe that God takes that and then he uses it in, in supporting the missionaries around the world we stand with, the missions agencies, and that we get to be a part in our giving. But then after we tally up those numbers, we take these cards and we destroy them. We get rid of them. We don't hang on to them. We don't follow up and call you down the road hoping that, and reminding you that, hey, you said you'd give this much, but you haven't. We don't do any of that. 
But it's just a reminder, it's something we can use to gauge as a church family what we're believing God can do through us in missions. And then I would encourage you, so it's called a faith promise, that let, your, let the number you write down, let your commitment towards missions, let it be a step of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so if you choose to write down for your faith promise a commitment, a number that is already completely doable, and you can already figure it all out, then I guess I would just simply ask you, is there faith involved? But God's desire is that through you and through me, through our willingness to give, that he is not only bringing Jesus into the lives of others, but that we get to be a part as individuals and as a church family to, as Isaiah did, to stand there in the presence of God and say, God, here am I, send me. Here am I, use me. So I'm gonna just take a moment and pray. And I would just ask you, if you haven't already, fill out your card and then the ushers will come. And invite, I'll, in fact, invite the ushers to go and begin to make their way towards the front. But let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you, God, that we get to be a part of sharing your faithfulness with others. And so this morning, as we choose to give from our finances or really make a commitment to give this year for missions, God, we recognize that our giving is a part of what you desire to do. And so I pray that you would take everything that is pledged this morning to be a part of our faith promise as a coming year and that you would take it and that you would bless it. God, many in this room are taking a step of faith and I pray that you would bless that step of faith and that you would begin to fill it. God, as they have looked to you, So Lord, we give you this moment in Jesus' name, amen.